Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaHealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Hello, this is Dr. Zev Schumann-Olivier as guest host for Mary Woods on One Hour at a Time. I'd like to welcome our guest today. Charlie Strauss, who is a clinical social worker in private practice in the Boston area. He has a, a widely respected for his experiences working um, with uh, issues of gender and sexuality in mental health. He has experience facilitating the bisexual and bi-curious men's group at the Family Community Health Center, Boston's preeminent health clinic focused on the needs of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgendered community. Um, so welcome to our show, Charlie. It's nice to, nice to have you here. And thanks so much for having me on. Um, so, so Charlie, w- we were hoping to talk today about uh, sexuality and gender in mental health. And I was wondering if you could just uh, help us to understand why this is an important area for us to be aware of. Sure, sure. Well, my understanding about the show that you, <clears throat> excuse me, the, so, the show that you host is that um, oftentimes there are issues of dual diagnosis that come up. And um, I guess what might be helpful, I think, would be to talk a little bit about sexuality and its intersection um, and why, this is, why it's a, a relevant topic for issues of, of addiction recovery and dual diagnosis. Um, to start out with, I, I think it's important to say that um, the LGBT community overall, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender folks, um, the prevalence of use of alcohol, tobacco, and other, you know, substances are oftentimes for the same reasons as other people who do not identify as LGBT, um, but oftentimes there are cultural stresses resulting from homophobia and, um, and bias in the culture overall. Um, I think it's important for me to just start off right from the beginning to say that I, I don't believe that um, gender and sexuality per se is a pathology, but I think that because of the controversy within our culture um, and some of the biases involved with folks in our culture, oftentimes the, the pathology lies in the relationship between the individual who you know, may qualify for diagnoses of, of a dual diagnosis or be dealing with a substance abuse problem, um, but the relationship between that individual and society as a whole um, and, and that friction and that homophobia and the like can really result in higher stress for the individual and can sometimes lead to higher risks um, and higher prevalence for substance abuse. Um, you keep mentioning the word homophobia. Can you just describe what that means? People, some people may be familiar with it, but I'm uh, not sure everyone mm-hmm. Of course. Um, homophobia is a term that I believe came about 
in the early 70s. Um, it's mm-hmm. used to describe the fear of LGBT folks by others. Um, it's, I would add that, that because we're talking about this relationship between the individual and society, there's a, a slightly newer term called internalized homophobia, which is oftentimes thought of as a, a form of self-limiting and, and self, self-loathing. Um, that's, that's that uh, the individual takes on the shaming that society puts on them for their identity or their behaviors. And that, I think, is an important concept to understand in um, providers for substance abuse services for this population. So you're saying that, that potentially somebody who um, may have um, either thoughts, feelings, or behaviors um, of wanting to engage in um, lesbian or gay bisexual um, activity would, would have senses of internal shame um, or hatred towards, them, towards themselves um, that would put them at risk for using substances. Isn't that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And then, of course, going back to what I said before, that I do not conceptualize the pathology as lying within the individual. But think of it this way. If, if a person grows up in a society that says that they should not exist the way that they are and shouldn't, and shouldn't act on you know, feelings that they have, and then maybe they don't see those feelings being reflected in the other people around them, um, then it's, it, it renders the self um, invisible. It, sort of, it, it makes it difficult for the individual to feel validated by the social fabric around them. Um, even worse than this, or perhaps you know, equally as bad, is that sometimes this sort of homophobia is not only taken into the individual who may identify as LGBT, but, um, but others can sometimes act on homophobia in the form of hate crimes. Um, acting out some of this discomfort and fear and loathing of LGBT people um, with violence, um, whether it's overt physical or sexual violence or, you know, the the smaller but damaging emotional social interactions that people have to deal with all the time. Um, and that, of course, takes its toll on individuals. Um, I guess you know that it's that kind of stress in addition to the hard work that we all do every day just to survive and thrive and you know it can range from mildly irritating to devastating for other people. Mm. I feel like I've heard that discussed before as microviolence. Um kind of mm, uh, that's a good da- term. Um, da- daily violence, small acts of violence that that may not be physical or uh, overt but that many people experience throughout the day. Um, yeah. Um Okay. Well, uh, what are some of the things that, um, since as you as you correctly um, suggested, our, our listeners are often um, uh, people who are involved either in the, the mental health uh, community, mental health treatment community, a recovery community, or um, addiction recovery community. Um, what are some risk factors um, that uh, that uh, LGBT um, adolescents and young adults um, and, and adults um, may experience? Well, let's see. I think there are all the usual um, that many people might experience, and then there are some that are perhaps not unique to folks who are part of a stigmatized identity or community around sexuality and gender, but 
but maybe are somewhat distinct from um, you know from the the, the straight community. Um, let's see. So I, I've heard some folks really experience a sense of worthlessness or the sense of self as being somehow bad. That's that internalized homophobia that I was describing. Um, mm-hmm. Oftentimes, people experience a lack of feeling connected or supported by adults or peers. Um, it, oftentimes, I have found this with the people who I will work with in my in my clinical practice, um, both because of the social milieu that they're part of, but um, and and also just because they haven't been exposed to supportive communities and supportive peers. Sometimes folks really lack alternative ways to view their different differentness from others. And I use different in a very value-neutral way. Um, if you've internalized a sense of feeling somehow less than or stigmatized with that judgment that's included, um, it can oftentimes in a clinical setting be very helpful to help clients start to understand that that differentness doesn't need to be such a stigma. Um, so uh, uh, being different doesn't necessarily equal being bad. It just means being different. It could mean that's right. Could mean being that's interesting right. or or um, exciting or creative or something like that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Did I get that right? Absolutely. You know, like sort of a okay. you know from a from a politically correct point of view, celebrating a difference and just recognizing that things aren't difference is not necessarily bad. It's not necessarily a pathology. It's not necessarily something that is against the values of others, um, and it's not it's not necessarily unacceptable. It can be something that's worth celebrating and has a full range of effects on people's lives. Um, do you mind if I offer a few more of those risk factors you were asking for? Sure, yeah. I'm, I'm very interested. Um, Thank you. A couple more that I could say is that it's, it can be very helpful for folks to have role models to see themselves reflected in the world, um, you know, their identities reflected in the world. I think that that's, um, that's really improved with the advent of the Internet. I think that can be, the Internet can be a place of um, being able to see oneself reflected in others since it's such a, you know, I'd say a, a, a proliferation or a democratization of, of, of a platform for people to publish and express themselves. Um, and, and also because it's oftentimes very difficult and sometimes frightening to go out to try to socialize and meet new people, um, whether for, for relationships, you know, large uh, relationships or friendships or just meeting people um, or to try to find a date or the like. There are not a lot of settings where people can do this if, um, if they're not straight and still maintain a sense of personal safety the way that most straight people can just take for granted. So because of this, a lot of LGBT folks tend to um, be sequestered in their places, their public places to meet new people in bars and clubs. Um, and that, of course, has its own effect upon the culture um, which also affects the access to um, substances, um, which I think can bear pretty can be fairly relevant to the issues that we're talking about today. And then, of course, there's the risk factor for contracting HIV um, because of past history and um, and and sort of sexual mores of whichever community people decide to connect to and reach out to. And these are all factors are which I think are risk factors. <laughs> Yeah, well, plenty of risk factors and, of course, plenty of resilience as well. I, I don't want to focus simply on, on the problems, but I do, you know, this is part, I, I, I guess it's important to make the case that this is a, an issue which needs to be acknowledged that for 
some clients who may come to programs seeking support around um, substance use or for other mental health issues, they may also have this that informs, you know, sexuality and gender may inform, um, you know, the, the substance, substance use issue, which is the presenting problem. Um, and so developing a certain amount of competence as a professional to at least recognize and provide an open, accepting space for clients can be, um, can be key sometimes to really helping some of these folks you know, manage, um, you know, the, the true pathology of, of substance use or abuse, I would say, in addiction. Could you speak to some of those resilient factors that you were talking about? Are there things that help make people in this community more, more resilient to mental um, health? Sure, absolutely. I, I think, well, here's what I can offer around that. Um, people in... People have both a, a family that they're born into and a chosen family. And um, many people who identify with a sort of stigmatized subculture or identity um, will, uh, be, because of the lack of acceptance in society at large, can oftentimes find, once they find it, they can really hook in with a strong, resilient, supportive subculture or chosen family. And there's oftentimes, um, from a social um, or a psychosocial point of view, a lot of strength in there. Um, and people can find, um, you know, some of the best. Um, there's a level of discourse sometimes within the GLBT community that is very honest and very aware, say, about... Um, about sexuality, about relationship, about um, about those sorts of issues that sometimes are not present within um, kind of straight privileged communities that really aren't called upon to develop that level of, of uh, discourse because they're not forced to. Maybe one of the things we could do when we come back from break is to think a little bit about how the uh, LGBT community um, thinks about um, itself and um, and uh, thinks about sexuality and gender um, and from you know uh, and how they think about it as as a strength uh, and maybe talk about some definitions for um, for listeners who may not be aware of all the um, all the uh, uh, all the um, different types of uh, of people um, and uh, all different types of people's experiences. So um, we'll be returning in uh, in a couple minutes. Uh, and thank you, Charlie. Sure. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. There are a number of health and social services available to individuals for low cost or no cost. Now there's a radio program devoted to bringing you the information you need. Tune in to Outreach Today with host Melissa Jenkins-Simon. Our program promotes the benefits and services of CI Incorporated, providing health and social services over a wide spectrum of resources and agencies. We want to help you. Tune in to Outreach Today, Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Hello and welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is your guest host, Dr. Zeb Schumann-Olivier, and I'm here with Charlie Strauss, who is a licensed independent clinical social worker who works in private practice here in the Boston area and has a specialty in uh, working with gender and sexuality, both with youth and adults, uh, and has uh, extensive experience working at the Fenway Community Health Center um, facilitating the bisexual and bi-curious men's group. Charlie, thanks for um, uh, being here today, and uh, I'd like to focus on this next section on um, helping us uh, and, and our listeners to understand um, the ways that the um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender community understands sexuality and gender. Sure. I think it's always helpful to offer at least some model so that people can have a vocabulary to talk about this stuff. Um, I I should add as well, just before I jump into that, that um, we've spoken mostly about LGBT-identified folks. I think that it's important not to leave out um, other forms or identities around sexuality as well, although so much of the sexuality conversation tends to coalesce around LGBT, so I I may throw those in every now and then. That would be great if you could help us have a framework for understanding um, all people uh, in their experience. We'd appreciate that. Um, I will humbly try to do my bit in that way. Um, (laughs) So let's see. Um, To start out with, I think one of the easiest ways to uh, cut the cake, so to speak, about the human experience of gender and sexuality is to break it down into four large categories um, for each person's experience. People often talk about um, somatic or body-based sex as differentiated from gender identity, and that as well separate from, but sometimes related to, gender expression, and lastly, sexuality or sexual orientation. Those are four categories that can be helpful to speak of as being distinct because it really allows us to recognize that for many, perhaps most people um, in the world, those tend to line up in a relatively small number of pathways. But for a lot of the people who I see in my practice, um, they line up in different ways, um, sort of in, the, in a, less, a less typical or less common kind of way. So um, 
I guess, to, and, and those four categories can each be broken down into many, many different other categories. So these are, I guess I'd call them um, uh, sort of gross categories or gross ways of understanding the human experience around sex, gender identity, gender expression, and sexual orientation. For example, with somatic or body-based sex, um, a lot of people presume that the body is either male or female. Um, Lots of doctors presume that, especially a generation or two ago. Um, Most people in the public did as well. But um, I don't know if anybody in your listening audience has ever heard of intersex um, conditions, but there are, I think, well over 40 40 different oftentimes considered medical conditions, not necessarily, but oftentimes considered medical conditions, more than 40 different ways of being not simply the typical male or female body type. And that can be informed by um, genetics and you know, hormonal exposure in utero um, and perhaps other factors as well. I just think it's important to give that as an example so that listeners can understand that each of these four larger categories are not as simple as many of us usually presume that they are. Um, And if we can move beyond that simple assumption, then that can render some of these people who don't fit these simple pathways, it can render them more visible, or at least it can help us be a little bit more open-minded to the possibility that someone who we engage with um, may not fit our assumptions about how sex and gender tend to be lived by everybody. Um, another example I could offer around sexual orientation, um, sort of the GLB part of um, GLBT, is something called the Klein scale. I, my, many people haven't heard of the Klein scale, although I would guess that more people have heard of the Kinsey scale, um, named after Alfred Kinsey. So, um, here, I'll, I'll, I'll talk you through something which I think can be really helpful. The most, one of the most simplistic ways, um, which has its value, but one of the most simplistic ways of understanding sexual orientation is to think everyone is either gay or straight. And that's you know, mutually exclusive, two categories, non-overlapping, 100% gay or 100% straight. And I bump into this a lot, for example, if uh, a presumably straight person all of a sudden has, it like, you know, um, expresses something in, um, that makes someone, their gaydar go off, for example, then all of a sudden people are like, oh, oh, are they gay? Are they gay? Right? Have they flipped over to the other side of this two sets, two categories? Um, and then one step up in sophistication would be to think about sexual orientation as being either gay or bisexual or straight. And sometimes there's the assumption that if someone who is bisexual, they are 50-50, you know, equally attracted to people of both sexes. Of course, I say both sexes, and I just talked about how there's many ways of having sex in your body. So that's a, I, I put both in quotes there. Um, and then to move past that into something which I think was a real breakthrough in terms of American discourse back in the 60s, Al Kinsey, who was um, originally, uh, he, he studied gall wasps and was really good at categorization and understanding various morphology and categories. He applied Did you say that wasps? scientific... He studied like bees? Did you I'm say sorry? he studied wasps? Yes, that's right. He studied a particular kind of wasp, like as in a bee, but a wasp. And he was very good at understanding the body types. Um, he sort of studied this particular species, or you could say this particular kind of gall wasp across vast geographic areas and was able to see 
how they varied and thus could sort of, you know, say something about the population dynamics and uh, population dynamics and evolutionary patterns and the like. But then he, he shifted and used those tools that he had developed to really put, um, to study human sexuality. Um, it was really a shift for him. There's a, you know, Liam Neeson played um, Kinsey in a movie that came out, I, something on the order of five years ago called Kinsey. That's a, that's a good first blush understanding of, of how this happened for him, what his personal journey was. But he applied this way of understanding vast diversity to um, boiling things down to seeing patterns within diversity. And so he came up with something called the Kinsey scale, after him, um, and at its base, most simplistically, he said it's not an either-or. It's not mutually exclusive categories. It's a continuum that varies smoothly. And so he, if you can imagine a line with two endpoints, where on one end would be, say, um, gay, and on the other end would be straight, then he said... Um, each person in terms of their sexual behavior, because he was into measuring behavior as a physical observation-oriented scientist, he said everyone exists somewhere on this continuum. And they're not mutually exclusive categories. You can be, you know, like a one, a two, a three, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, I think his scale was um, uh, zero to a six. The numbers aren't so important. The concept that's important is the continuum. And that provides for a lot more nuance than having these non-overlapping categories. And then there was a psychotherapist named Fritz Klein, um, K-L-E-I-N, and people can um, look this up on the Internet as well, the Klein scale. He said, let's take this one step further to really represent the complexity of human experience um, and really see if we can accurately represent, at least more accurately represent people's experiences and the diversity of experiences. So he said, yes, let's keep this continuum concept, but let's use more than one continuum. So instead of having a single continuum for sexual behavior and that's all you have and you're one number, say you're a one or you're a four or you're a six, Klein said you can have one continuum and you have one number for your sexual behavior. You have another continuum for um, who you find yourself attracted to. And those numbers that you score on those continua can be different from each other and then have another number for who you fantasize about, another number for how you identify in terms of, like, you know, the continuum from gay to straight. Um, and that's what most people think about in terms of sexual orientation, the self-identity part. Um, another part in terms of who you share emotional intimacy with, another continuum for uh, your politics or the people you spend time with. Um, and so... Again, I would say those categories are helpful as signposts, but really, if someone wants to um, kind of uh, provide an opportunity to explore themselves or, say, a clinician wants to explore um, a client's identity with the client, you don't have to stick with those particular categories. For me, the important concept is the client incorporated a continuum with this idea of multiple continuum, which can vary independently. So someone could be a one, a five, four, three, three, six, you know, and, or all over the map. And lastly, what Klein did that I think is key is he said, sexual orientation can vary, and your scores on my Klein scale can vary throughout your lifespan. It's not that somebody goes through a self um, 
self-investigation and discovery. And by the time they're, say, in their early 20s, which is the cliche, you, know, you go through your adolescence and you get into your 20s and you're done, no, clients said, no, it can change. It can change again. Um, and I've worked with a number of clients where they've discovered something new about themselves um, in terms of gender or sexuality and um, and maybe, you know, in their case, brought it to therapy to work it out. And they were in their 40s or 50s or 60s. Um, so I think that's important to mention as well. That, thanks for sharing um, with us that uh, information about the client scale. It, it almost seems to me, you know, if part of being in therapy is self-discovery, that this is a really nice way to um, to uh, break up all the confusing thoughts and feelings one might have and be able to under understand it more clearly by kind of dividing into different aspects of of sexual orientation. Sure. And and I would add that some clients I work with are not confused. They're just suffering because of the interaction with society at large and they have to work that stuff out as well. Right. Right. Um, yeah. Well, I think there's um there's so many different aspects of uh, that you were talking about, and um, and uh, at least in my, my own clinical experience, I often uh, find myself working um, with people that ha- that sometimes have different feelings on on both sides of the fence, and um, and uh, and are, are trying to figure that out for themselves. Um, um, and uh, I, I think uh, people often seem happier when happiest when when they do kind of um, be able to figure out where they stand. And be able to struggle sure. with that. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, well, well, this is this has been really helpful. It helps us kind of move, move beyond a binary way of looking at sexual orientation. Um, perhaps we can pick up a little bit more on this after our, our next break, um, and then uh, and then talk some more about about uh, your clinical practice, you know, and uh, how you've seen gender and sexuality intersect um, for people with their mental health and addictions. That sounds great. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is guest host, Zev Schumann-Olivier, and I'm here with a uh, special guest, Charles Strauss, who is a clinical social worker in private practice here in the Boston area and who has um, wide ranges of experience working um, with gender and sexuality issues uh, among, young, among uh, children, teenagers, and adults, um, and uh, has worked at the uh, Fenway Community Health Center facilitating the bisexual and bicurious men's group there. Um, Charlie, before we um, before we went to break, you were talking about how there were four general um, areas that one could define oneself and one's experience of sexuality and gender. You talked about biological sex, your gender identity, your gender expression, and your sexual orientation. You talked about the Klein scale with regard to sexual orientation, and I think our listeners will um, likely want to go to the web to look that up and, and download that for, um, for either their own personal um, uh, investigation or um, for work with, with clients um, in, uh, in their clinical practice. Um, in addition, you talked about biological sex, and, um, um, but there were two that you didn't talk about, which is gender identity and gender expression. And uh, I know that you do a lot of work with um, uh, trans youth, uh, and I was hoping that maybe you could talk more about uh, gender identity and gender expression and, and um, perhaps introduce us to some more terms and, and concepts. Okay, okay, sure. I, I certainly don't want to get lost in terms too long because I want to make sure that this ends up being about full people and not just you know, is- these particular issues um, in theory. But, yeah, I think it's important to give some visibility to um, issues of gender in addition to um, sexuality. So um, gender identity, let's say. I'll start with this. Gender identity is how a person feels about their own gender, how I identify, you know, do I identify as being male or female or do I identify as being something different than that, um, which, you know, many people might not, might not occur to many folks, but for some people, um, I think that's, that's really very much core to who they are. Um, in particular, I think it's important to um, point out that, you know, when, when, a, when a person is born in our culture, what is the first question that so many of our loved ones will ask to the parents? You know, is it a boy or is it a girl? Um, there's this presumption that it's uh, a core... It, it's, it's actually the first ultrasound that question gets asked. Not, uh, there you go. Well born. before birth. Yes, of course. Um, and and I, because it's so defining in our culture and there's so much, um, you know, whether right or wrong, there is so much gender stereotyping and gender tracking and uh, gender management, so to speak, and the teaching of gender roles within our society, it can be very sort of profoundly foundational to a person's identity. Now, what happens when someone is assigned um, one gender identity, say they're assigned a gender identity of being um, female at birth, but then at some point along the way, whether they're two years old, 12 years old, or 72 years old, 
they come into some awareness that this doesn't fit me. I'm not female. I'm not a girl. I'm not a woman. This is not who I am. I feel like I am, you know, a man or a different kind of woman or there's another term as well. Um, So these folks where there's a mismatch between the assigned sex or assigned gender and their own internally experienced gender identity, these folks are oftentimes put under the umbrella of transgender. Um, And it's a complicated area. You could probably have an entire show on issues of transgender and gender diversity. Um, it's, I, I, find this, I find this sort of thing really important and fascinating as well. And you can go on and on. There's a, this is really an evolving field within the clinical world right now. Um, but say this person who I mentioned who was assigned the gender and sex of female may say, on my insides, I really don't feel like a woman. Um, I feel like a man, or I've, or maybe I, I feel like neither a woman or a man. Um, and, and we might call that, instead of being transgender, someone might I choose the term uh, genderqueer as well, which can be a very helpful term. And within, sort of, uh, within that identity, within that community, it's not considered to be pejorative. I think that's important. The, the term queer is being reclaimed by people within the in-group. Um, but I would also say that if, um, for clinicians or people who are not part of that group, be careful how you use that because queer is a controversial term that's being reclaimed. It's sort of in process, culturally speaking, right now. Um, and so that's gender identity is how you feel on the inside, how you feel about what your gender is. And then gender expression is the way that you express or perform gender in a social, in various social uh, settings. So um, there are so many different ways in which people in our culture perform gender. Most visibly to most people would be things like how someone dresses, um, how, how you dress, what your hair looks like, um, maybe the way that people move and their body language, um, tone of voice and speech patterns are a little more subtle, which were, it's harder for a lot of people to sort of really articulate those differences, but they're there, and we're very aware of them as people. Um, and then, of course, there's other things that define people's gender, like their body type um, and sort of both primary and secondary sexual characteristics. And, um, and there are some people who decide, I am going to really... Um, challenge or traverse the boundaries of my assigned gender role. Um, and so some people decide to change how they dress or decide to change their, the people who they spend time with or the activities that they're involved with. Um, some people decide to go through uh, medical interventions, and you can do that through um, you know, hormones of hormone therapy. For trans youth, I think it's important to say and put out there that um, you know, youth who want to, who really feel like, you know, they're in the wrong body, um, if you, if, if they are able to seek and engage with the medical community at the right time around puberty, then you can also um, put off puberty by using um, you know, puberty blockers that delays the onset of puberty. And that can actually, that can literally be life-saving for some of these kids. Um, I think it's important to say that as well. You're saying life-saving because um, the risk of suicide or, or things like that are, are high in that population? Or Absolutely. for even other, other reasons? Absolutely. The, the suicide risk because of the, um, remember I was speaking before about homophobia. Well, there's another term, which is not just a term, it's a reality for many people who, um, you know, who live this experience, but transphobia. 
and internalized transphobia can be really important. And just imagine what it would feel like for a minute if you, if you were born into the body that felt wrong to you. And as a child, you know, a prepubescent child, um, you know, kids' bodies are, you know, very similar in terms of, of body type and physiology. But then all of a sudden around age, let's say, you know, anywhere between 9 and 13 or 14, depending on the individual, all of a sudden your body revolts against what you feel like you are. Maybe sort of a female body type starts to develop breasts and starts to develop menses, or a male body type starts to develop, you know, facial hair, um, and the voice starts to drop. And these are secondary sex characteristics that for somebody who doesn't identify as that gender can be really disturbing and, and really sort of shake them to their foundational sense of who they are. Like I said before, the gender is really basic to who people feel they are. Um, and, mm-hmm. and for many folks who identify as trans or as genderqueer, this is, for many people, this is not a phase. This is not a choice. This is something which, and this is still, there's not enough research to know sort of, you know, why this happens to some individuals and not to others. And people are actively doing research on this. Um, but, but this is not something that most of these kids or adults take lightly. Um, you know, it's not something which you can say, oh, snap out of it. It's not a big deal or snap out of it. Come over to the, to the privileged majority side. Life would be so much easier for some of these kids and adults. This is who they are, and their um, their thirst for authenticity is really a matter of, you know, as most serious, it's life and death. Um, maybe one step down, there are lots of people who experience, like, really clinical levels of depression and anxiety and various other sorts of mental health diagnoses, um, you know, or symptomology. And, and this sort of issue is another thing, which is why this topic is very relevant for issues of dual diagnosis and, and mm-hmm. substance abuse. You know, there's a way in which some of these folks will choose to self-medicate. Maybe we could go there for a minute. And, um, uh, you know, a lot of our listeners are either clinicians who care a lot about people who have mental health um, symptoms or uh, addiction or interdiction recovery or, the, or families that care a lot about their loved ones who are um, in recovery in some way. Um, would, would these clinicians and these family members know um, uh, that someone was struggling with um, uh, a mismatch of, of gender or or sexual orientation, um, uh, and would there be signs that people could look for that if they wanted to be caring and helpful could uh, um, could help with? Um, and uh, I'm just interested from your own clinical experience if you've um, if there were people who kind of uh, you've worked with who it wasn't. Who, who didn't necessarily say outright why they were using substances or why they were so depressed, but then only after um, were you able to find out that this was something that they were trying to figure out for themselves. I, I have to say I really appreciate that question, Zev. It's a, it's a very thoughtful question to ask how can people be, how can loved ones be supportive allies? Um, I think that's always such an important question when people are dealing with addiction or mental health issues, you know, the, a supportive community is, is exactly what so many of these folks need and, and oftentimes lack, especially given, you know, given sexuality and gender, which is stigmatized in society, so many people lack the easy access to supportive, um, so, so, supportive social supports. So that's a, it's a great question. Um, so what can people do? 
I guess I would say um, learn about issues of sexuality and gender. And, of course, sexuality, I think, can include not only issues of you know, LGBT sexual orientation, but it can also include um, you know, alternative sexualities as well. There, there are some people who have, um, you know, who the way that they're, the way that they are and the way that they choose to live as well as, for example, they have open relationships and there are people who have, um, you know, who are into things like BDSM and the like, you know, um, their kinky relationships and people have all sorts of feelings about those, but if you want to be supportive to someone in your life about this issue, then it's, really it becomes maybe your responsibility as a first step to learn about those issues yourself and to figure out your own stuff around sexuality and gender. Um, I think you before I was able to do this... Like, like um, mm. parents may have certain expectations about what their children should be and that might be um, providing a barrier for from children being able to fully express Absolutely. what they're experiencing. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll, here's an example that I think I, I oftentimes like to offer. Okay, why don't you Most tell us an example the, before we go to break. Thanks. Sure, sure. So there are a lot of um, families that come to me with um, a transgender-identified teenager. And when they first come into my office, they each have very different experiences and perspectives. And part of my work is working with those two different experiences to be able to see and empathize with each other. For for the young person, they are—they have been dealing with this question and this mismatch of gender for perhaps years, and are pushing and impatient for an experience of authenticity to live the way they really are. And for the parents, they are—they are maybe recently discovered this because perhaps maybe their—you know—their child recently told them about it, and the parents are concerned. They're worried about their child's safety. All of these. Um, you know, what does it mean if my child is really trans? And that's an understandable um, reality for them in perspective, and they oftentimes, the parents want to slow things down. So oftentimes, I think what's helpful um, for parents and loved ones is to be open-minded and to remember that, you know, both parents and kids have a very different perspective, and both of them are valid experiences in trying to grapple with, you know, what this child is experiencing in this social fabric within this social world of stigma around these issues. Okay. Um, Thanks. So maybe when we um, come back from break, we could talk uh, a little about some of your, some more of your clinical cases um, and some of your experiences and then talk about, you know, what can people who are, um, who are uh, in recovery uh, do if they uh, feel like, um, they have questions about their gender or sexuality or, or needs that are going unmet. Um, what kind of resources might be available for them? Uh, thank you. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned 
common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. Uh, this is guest host Zev Schumann Olivia. I'm here with Charlie Strauss, who is a clinical social worker in private practice in the Boston area. And um, uh, his information can be found at www.charlesstrauss.com. Uh, he is uh, um, both uh, experienced working at the Fenway Community Health Center as the facilitator for the bisexual and bicurious men's group as well as a member of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, which is the organization responsible for establishing standards of care in the allied health professions. Charlie, would you mind telling us a little bit about a, uh, about, a, you know, uh, a situation, clinical situation that you've worked with um, where you think that um, we might be able to learn something about the importance of addressing gender and sexuality? Yes, of course. And I know that these issues are not going to be prominent for, you know, for every client, but when they are, they can really be the key to sustained recovery or at least, you know, really improving recovery. So here's an example. Um, a client of mine, a client came to me. Um, he is in his 50s. Um, so, you know, getting on in years, we're not talking about a youth kind of situation. But this is an individual who... Um, growing up, had an experience of somehow feeling different in terms of um, um, kind of activities that he participated in. Um, you know, with peers, he tended not to be involved in rough and tumble play um, and tended to sort of shy away from sports, say, example. You know, so then those are sort of gender-typed behaviors within the way our culture sees them. Um, he He... As a young adult, I guess he he came out to himself as being um, bisexual, and that was a real kind of uh, leap for him. And within that identity, he really experienced a sense of feeling alienated um, and not accepted and, and quite invalidated by both the heterosexual majority and also by um, lesbian and gay friends. And um, I think that's a fairly common experience for folks who um, claim sort of an identity of bisexuality. Um, and, and he went through various phases of trying to kind of find comfort for himself about who he was. Um, for him, I think he ended up experiencing as he sort of sought um, affection and, you know, a satisfying sex life and, you know, long-term relationships and, and all the like, he really had this experience of sex and intimacy being disconnected. Um, and I put forward with him that I wondered whether that had to do with him having internalized biphobia or, you know, homophobia and biphobia, the sense of somehow not, not being entitled to the space um, or his reality, not being entitled to his own experience. 
Um, and, and here's where it really ties in with dual diagnosis issues because this individual, he, he did have bouts of fairly significant um, depression um, and, and some anxiety, social anxiety as well, and oftentimes felt quite isolated, as you can imagine from my previous description. And the way that he learned how to cope with that sense of social anxiety and depression and loneliness that was really intolerable to him was he started to use substances. He started to use alcohol, um, marijuana, and it sort of, you know, lowered his inhibitions and allowed him to really engage with um, sort of uh, the social scenes where he was able to meet people um, but and and also perhaps perhaps it allowed him to sort of express some of those suppressed feelings. But over time, I think he we ended up discovering that that the substance abuse ended up making it harder for him to integrate emotional intimacy and sex. And so, for for this client and I, the the work in many ways ended up being we started with focusing on depression. Um, and how ultimately the goal was to decrease decrease the experience of depression and social isolation, um, but the route to that um, mitigating the route to decreasing the experience of depression and anxiety was really through this understanding of the the system of internalized biphobia, societal stigma, um, using like self medicating through the use of substances. And, and it took a while to tease that apart, and it involved an awful lot of just stepping through the issue slowly and, you know, giving this individual the space to really feel safe to explore because there were so few spaces where he felt safe to express this and seek support and to reflect on it with someone else who could give a sympathetic ear. I think that is the experience a lot of people have is that even if they're... Um, that uh, even if they feel like they're coming to a therapist um, and telling them everything, that this is maybe something that they can't quite share or they're not sure um, someone will be open to hearing about. Um, and that might be because of that internalized stigma that you're talking about. Well, and you could say that's true because of the internalized stigma and also very much because there are, um, you know, there, there is a risk to disclosing at times. And, you know, there are, unfortunately, it's it's... It's unfortunately all too common for some healthcare providers to, um, you know, to not be comfortable themselves, and perhaps then to project a sense of judgment onto these folks who are okay. already feeling judged by society at large. So there's a very That's real a, external. Okay, fine. It's about the interaction, like you were talking about before. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, and that seems like one place where the client scale could um, be able to potentially project, use of the client scale could project the feeling of comfort, um, or at least a feeling of openness to the. Um, to the dimensionality of of uh, people's experience. I'm um, sure you mean well, if, if health professionals were to offer that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm wondering if you could if you could um, uh, give us some uh, suggestions of some resources, both that health professionals and uh, individuals could could uh, know about um, if they wanted to find out more about this or seek out um, support for themselves. Okay, so I'm going to run through. We don't have very much time left, do we? So I should probably run through. Yeah, we have about this. about three or four minutes. Yeah. Great. Okay, so I'll, I'll see what I can offer. Um, I'm I'm more familiar with resources in the Greater Boston area, so that's what I'm going to speak to for the most part. 
Um, I, I can say that really, you know, larger cities in the U.S. do oftentimes have mental health and recovery programs that, that specialize in issues of sexuality and gender. Um, but outside of large urban, excuse me, outside of large urban areas, there may not be such programs. So sometimes I, you know, it is challenging for clients to see if they, you know, what they can find, and it may take some asking around. Um, Here's what I can offer. So you can look up on, on the web the Klein scale. Again, it's K-L-E-I-N scale. Um, as far as um, sort of larger national organizations, there's uh, an organization called WPATH, which is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. Um, and they can provide a lot of information about issues around gender identity. That's WPATH.org. Um, the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association has a number of resources on their website. That's glma.org. Um, I'd suggest, of course, Fenway Community Health is fairly well known across the country. Um, the Sydney Borum Health Center, which is now part of Fenway, is focused more on the needs of um, teens and youth. I think that's helpful. And specifically around substance use, there's a um, K Street is a great organization in Boston that um, provides safe space for 12-step meetings for folks who identify as being part of the LGBT community. Um, is there time for a few more, or do I need do we need to wrap um, up? Um, maybe you could just say one or two more, um, okay, if possible. Okay. Sure. So um, I guess I'd say the, a group that I'm involved in that you've been um, talking about, Zevin, your introduction of me is the, the Bisexual and Bicurious Men's Group at Fenway. And that's sort of a rather unusual safe space for folks to talk about issues of gender and sexuality. Um, it's free. Once a month, you can find it on Fenway's website. Um, and then, gosh, two more. Uh, the Massachusetts okay. Transgender Political Coalition, I think, is a great organization with lots of resources. Oh. And uh, the BRC is the Bisexual Resource Center, has a lot of resources for bisexual folks. And then um, okay, great. Well, I would also, we do are need, we done? We do need to end. So that was a nice list of different options. I think if people want more information, they can always uh, contact you directly at charlesstrauss.com. That's C-H-A-R-L-E-S-S-T-R-A-U-S-S.com. Charlie, thank you so much for coming on our show. And um, I really appreciate uh, everything that you've uh, shared with uh, our listeners. So thanks so much. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.